Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 17, verses 1 to 19. And if you're reading from the Pew Bibles, that's page 903. John chapter 17, verses 1 to 19. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of God. So we're like 12 hours away from the cross now. In the hour that has pounded like a crescendoing drumbeat throughout the Gospel of John um, has, has finally arrived. The cross is just over the horizon. Jesus knows this. It's time to get his family together, and it's time to pray. Don't you just so wish that you could hop in a time machine and hide behind a tree or a rock to listen in to the types of things that Jesus prayed for? What, they, what, what his prayers were anchored by, what they sounded like, even like what they felt like. Listening to what Jesus prays for can help us understand the priorities of Jesus and know, and know what's uh, important to him. And so what should be important to us in our own prayers? So let's hide out behind a tree or a rock, or maybe just go to John 17, and hear what Jesus has to say in prayer today. Jesus pauses, he lifts up his eyes. You don't have to close your eyes in prayer or bow your heads. He, he, he lifts up his eyes and he starts to pray. And I, and I think it's interesting how Jesus starts here. Um, if you just skip ahead there to verse 4, he acknowledges that he's basically already finished what he came to do. Do you see that in verse 4? He says, I've already accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
Well, in what sense is Jesus' work finished at this point in time, even before the cross? How can he say this? Well, first, I think he means that he's mostly finished, not that he's thoroughly finished. But I think we see here, too, that reducing Jesus' work only to his cross work is to way undervalue everything that came before the cross. In other words, according to this, we can't answer the question, what has Jesus done for you? With the typical, oh, he died on the cross to pay for my sins. Obviously, you're not wrong when you make that kind of pronouncement. But I think that answer falls woefully short of the glory of Christ. According to Jesus, his work was nearly complete even before the cross. Isn't that a wild thought? I think what we should glean from this at the very least is that Jesus' saving work began in Bethlehem and not on Calvary. His saving work began in Bethlehem and not on Calvary. Before he ever hung on that cross, he was brewing not just the payment for our sins, but our justification. You see, we don't just need our sins paid for. That's good, but it's not enough. We need for God to pronounce us fully righteous. This is called the act of justification. We are made righteous when we are declared by God to be in perfect harmony with the demands of the law. That's what it means to be justified. This is not made morally, uh, made righteous in the sense that we are made like morally virtuous either. It's not that God just helps us to be good. No, this is legal language. So like from God's perspective, you and I are not only sinless, but we're also perfectly righteous. We haven't just been brought up to zero, but we've been made eternally, infinitely wealthy in righteousness by God through Jesus. In justification, God literally clothes us with the righteousness of Jesus, and he declares us to be perfectly righteous because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So as Christians, and this is natural, we love to rush to the cross, and we should rush to the cross. It's the centerpiece of our faith but we should not so easily and quickly rush over the life of Jesus. He lived perfectly so that his righteous account could be applied to our unrighteous account. Jesus paid for your sin, but his life is what justifies you. It makes you literally perfect. From God's perspective, my sin has not only been paid for, I have perfectly fulfilled his righteous demands. So it's at the cross that this crazy exchange happens. You hand Jesus your filthy, sin-stained robes, and he, in turn, hands you his perfectly righteous, beautiful robes. So now you get all the advantages of being the son of God. That's how God views you. God would no more turn you away than he would turn his son away. God would no more turn you away then he would turn Jesus away. You're an adopted son or daughter. You're in the family. Christ's righteousness covers you. So if you're living today in some way just trying to catch the eye of God with a way that you feel or a way that you act, trying to catch God's eye by doing good stuff, hoping that he'll look on you favorably with every kind deed or every good motive that you can somehow uh, wrestle up. If, If you're living in this way, 
please stop. In verse 4, Jesus says that he's already accomplished this for you. Christ earned all the favor for you. You can't impress God because you can't out-impress Jesus. Jesus impressed God so that you don't have to. When the Reformers, if you've heard of the Reformation, when the Reformers recovered this gospel hundreds of years ago, the Catholic Church got super fearful. They were like, man, if you believe this, it's going to lead to immoral lives. There's no motivation, they said. There's no motivation for you to live holy because we're given a holiness that's not our own. So what motive would we have to actually live righteous, holy lives that reflect Jesus? But they underestimated the motivation of the gospel. They thought that holiness could only be motivated by fear. But it's not only motivated by fear. The hope of the gospel is where the Christian is where we find our source of fuel for holy living. Well, this is why Jesus, even before the cross, could in his prayer say that he basically already accomplished everything that he came to do. And so now the gospels record a number of times when Jesus stole away to pray. But this is the longest recorded prayer that we see in the Gospels. And John 17 has three main sections, maybe you're aware. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus is sort of is praying for himself and his glory. In verses 6 to 19, he begins to pray for his current disciples. I think um, context would say the, the 11 disciples that were there with him. And then from the 12 disciples, and 11, Judas would obviously be leaving the scene soon. And then from verses 20 to 26, we see what burdens Jesus has for us as future believers, future disciples. And as an encouragement to you, just from the jump here, here's what James 5 says about prayer. It says, the prayer of a righteous person has much power. The prayer of a righteous person has much power. So Jesus, as the quintessential righteous person, has the power to ensure that these prayers actually come to fruition, that they come true. So whatever he prays for you this morning that we see from John 17 is God's will for you and will be done in you powerfully. Take heart in that as Jesus labors over his disciples and us in prayer. The prayer of a righteous person has much power. So let's let's start from the top here where Jesus prays for glory in verses 1 to 5. Jesus prays for glory. You know when you have a friend that moves out of state, but you pass by their house, and while you're passing by their house on the road that used to be theirs, there's just this sense of loss. A few months ago, I was driving down Fitzwatertown Road, right by the Nisleys' old house. And if you're new to Trinity, the Nisleys, Nathan was one of the, the founding pastors here, and it's almost been a full year since they've been gone. It's hard to believe. But I was passing by their house, and... Um, I guess rather creepily snapped a picture of it uh, and dropped them a text with the picture in there to tell them that I missed them and to volunteer my life savings in order to, have, to repurchase the house for them if they just moved back to be with us. But um, I got to looking at the picture and I noticed something in the front window, but I couldn't quite tell what it was, so I, I scrolled in on it. Uh, and the next time... Um, and I still couldn't see what it was. The next time I passed by, I totally creepily, again, took a closer look at the front window of this house. Slowed down, I'm going like five miles an hour on Fitzwatertown Road. Um, In the front window 
were tons of trophies. Now, I couldn't tell what kind of trophies they were, if it was like karate or sports or music or dance or whatever. But I got to be honest, I was really mystified as to why you'd want to display those in your front window. Maybe inside on a bookshelf or on your mantle or something, but in the front window? Now, Nathan, if you are listening to the podcast along with my mom and those were your leftover Taekwondo trophies or something like that that you forgot to take with you, please forgive me. But if someone has a collection of trophies in their front window, it makes me wonder a few things. And I, I guess I need to caveat here and say, if this is your desired uh, method of interior design, I am not speaking to the morality of your trophy set in your front window at all. I'm just telling you the way it struck me in the moment as I peered into the Nisley's old house's front window. Um, it just sort of made me feel like they were shoving their accomplishments right into my face. I mean, why should I care about the trophies that you've earned, right? It just felt to me like a little bit overdone. They're trying to maximize the glory that those trophies represented where the whole world can see them on Fitzwatertown Road. Well, I wonder if you've ever felt that way about Jesus. Look there in verse 1, toward the end. The hour has come, and he says, glorify your son. Have you ever felt about Jesus the way I felt about those trophies? <laughs> How does it make sense for Jesus to pray for his own glory? Doesn't that just kind of reek of arrogance? I mean, if I had prayed this a few minutes ago, you'd have been pretty put off. Oh God, please make much of me as I speak today. Help the jokes to flow and the laughter to roll. Glorify me. Oh, you should all stand up and leave, right? But Jesus gets to do this? Why does Jesus get to pray for his own glory? Well, very simply, there is nothing more glorious than God. And so for God to tell us to give glory to anything less than God would be foolish. But beyond that, I think it's important for us to see that his glory is not private. Jesus' glory is not private. Notice that Jesus does not seek private glory apart from the Father's glory. Look there at verse 1. Glorify me so that I may glorify you. Perhaps you can imagine an accomplished dance student begging her coach for a recital to demonstrate her superior skills. Now that student might be motivated by fame, by esteem, but she might also be motivated to tell the world just how great of a coach she has. Jesus' desire here wasn't no glory. Rather, his desire for glory was to make much of his Father's glory. That was the intent. One pastor said this, Jesus didn't just seek the glory of his Father separate from himself. That's what we do. We seek the Father's glory separate from ourselves. We seek the glory of God separate from us. But Jesus sought the glory of the Father beyond himself, not separate from himself, beyond himself. Now, maybe this troubles you. I'm not, I'm not sure. But I think we're more hardwired for glory than some of us may actually realize. Would you want to watch a football game where the players were no better than you? Or watch a movie where the actors could act no better than you? Or go to an art gallery where the artists could paint or draw no better than you? We, why do we gravitate toward and platform those who have superior gifts to ours? Why are we willing to be in all of these areas as utterly inferior? How can we get so much joy out of watching people magnify their superiority over us? You should be glad I'm not on this box or on the drum set or standing behind this microphone with a guitar. It's because we are made by God to get our deepest joys, not from being superior ourselves, but by enjoying someone else's superiority. 
That's hardwired into our humanity. And this desire to enjoy another's superiority finds its ultimate fulfillment in God. So what specifically is Jesus eager to highlight about the Father to the world here? Why does he want so much glory so he can show off the Father's glory? Well, the clue is found in verses 1 and 2. The glory of the Son connects to the first part of verse 2, and the glory of the Father connects to the second part of verse 2. Look at verse 1. The glory of the Son is reflected in the fact that, verse 2, the Father has given him authority over all flesh, over all humanity. And then again in verse 1, the glory of the Father is reflected in the fact that, verse 2, the Son accomplished the gifting of eternal life to all that the Father had given him. That's how it, how it works there. So I think what we see here is that though God is utterly God-centered, self-centered you might say, it's actually good news for us. If you know in your life right now an utterly self-consumed person, you've come to find out that this spells trouble for your relationship because they'll always be thinking about their own causes and not ever about your causes. But what if, what if there was someone whose self-causes were always to your advantage? Their self-causes always advantage you. This is true, and it's only true, of God's self-God-centeredness. His glory in any moment is always linked to your best experience of that moment. Whatever glorifies God most in a given moment will always bring about maximum joy for you in that moment, even if it's in the midst of an extraordinarily difficult trial in your life. So this, the question, what would glorify God most right now, should permeate our existence more than it does. Because the right answer to that question, what would glorify God most right now, is always the best option for that moment and always the thing that would bring about the most joy, deep-rooted joy in that moment. Well, Jesus' glory isn't private and his glory isn't for you, but it does affect you. This is super humbling right here, but ever so glorious. These first five verses enable us to understand that the cross itself, the very foundation of all redemption, is primarily, hear this, it's primarily a result of the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. And notice that neither you or I show up in that equation. We don't show up. Jesus came to do the work that the Father gave him, verse 4. And yet, we so often think that the ultimate motivation for Jesus behind the cross is God's love for us. And we definitely shouldn't minimize the love that God has shown to us. It's transcendent. It's beautiful. But it just wasn't the primary motive as Jesus hung on that cross. When Jesus prayed in agony in the garden that night, it wasn't the souls of you and me that finally pushed him over the edge to be able to go through with the plan of redemption. He didn't say, oh, this is awful, but I love those sinners so much that I'm going to go to the cross for them. That's not what we read. We read, oh God, not my will, but your will. I remember this song that I used to sing in youth group. It was called Above All. Maybe you remember it too. It's a beautiful song, some really powerful lyrics, but there was this one line about what Jesus was, kind of like what he was thinking on the cross, and it said this, you took the fall, and you thought of me above all. That's actually not true. As good as that song is, 
All throughout the New Testament, we read of the primacy of the glory of God. That's what Jesus was contemplating as he hung on that cross and while he was praying here in John 17. Now, I'm not saying that we weren't a piece of Jesus's motive. I'm just saying we weren't the primary motive. In other words, the dominating motive that drove him onward to perfect obedience was his desire to be at one with the Father's will. Though we are the beneficiaries of God's plan of redemption through Jesus, we are not at the center of everything as humanity. At the center was the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. Tonight, when I gather my family around to say goodbye and to pray, I bet one of the things that we'll pray for is safety. It's the same thing with Jesus here in John 17. It's, na- it's only natural. The safety that he prays for these guys, though, really isn't, it's not physical safety, but rather soul safety. He's already acknowledged repeatedly that physically speaking, following him is going to be rough, really difficult. I mean, you can see that all the way from John 13 to where we're at right now. It's not rainbows and roses. The world hates him and it's going to hate us. The world persecuted him and is going to persecute us. Jesus' main concern isn't for our physical safety. He makes that clear. If you look at verse 15, Jesus is like, I'm not asking you, Father, to take them out of this mess. He says, I'm asking you to keep them faithful despite the mess and even in the mess. So second this morning, Jesus prays for safety. Jesus prays for glory first, and then he prays for safety. Verse 12 kind of defines the parameters for the rest of this section of Jesus' prayer. In verse 12 there, he prays, God, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. What does that mean? The sense behind that word keep there is to guard or to protect. It's like an armed guard who watches over the king or the president or some kind of dignitary. Jesus prays that the Father would guard us in his name. Well, we saw this concept of God's name a little earlier in the text in verse 6, if you see it. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Well, Jesus is not saying that he's, when when he says, I have manifested your name, he's not saying he went around just saying, Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. He's not just going around announcing Jesus uh, or God's name. He's telling them about who God is, not just what his name is. God's name in verse 6 is directly associated with his word at the end of verse 6 and even more explicitly in verse 8. So in verse 6, Jesus is manifesting God's name. And then if you look down there, in verse 8, he's giving God's word. So God's name and God's word are the same thing here. So when Jesus begs God to keep them in God's name, he's asking him to guard them with his word. What do you want people to think of when they hear your name? Well, if you were to ask God that same question, what do you want people to think of when they hear your name, God? He'd say, right here, my character as it's exposed in this book. I want them thinking of my words. So we see here first that Jesus' recipe for safety is being word-centered. There is a safety in word-centeredness. Trinity, this book is the source of our soul safety. It's your certain refuge. It's your first resort and not your last. I'm not saying that this book will keep you safe from earthquakes or tornadoes or disease or poverty or death, physical death, that just isn't offered in this life. I'm talking about a better kind of safety, though, a soul safety that holds you even in those scenarios, soul safety that keeps you, like the true you, 
the real you, not the outer shell of you like what we all see, but the inner you, safe, despite all of hell unleashing its fury on you. If you want your faith to stay safe until the end, the word of God is your hope. Our lives should revolve around it like a shark circles its prey. I wonder if this book permeates your life or if it only permeates your Sundays from like 10 to noon-ish. Jesus says this book will keep your soul safe. So the source of the safety that Jesus prays for is the word of God. And this word-centeredness will have a sure result there according to verse 11. Father, keep them in your name, in your word, that they may be one, even as we are one. So notice next that safety comes through community. Safety of word-centeredness and now safety through community. Remember, Jesus is still praying here. What he, remember what he's praying for, that we'd be kept, specifically that we'd be kept by his word. And one of the very central methods of being kept in the word through this community is through this community right here, the people in this room. This community ought to reflect the unity. Hear this. This community right here ought to reflect the unity between the Father and the Son. See how he ends verse 11? That they may be one even as we are one. Oh. We ought to experience the kind of unity that the Father and the Son experience. Even as. The word for even as there in verse 11 carries with it this idea of degrees. So let's reread that phrase there and personalize it a bit. Father, keep my soul safe by giving Trinity Community Church unity to the same degree that you and Jesus enjoy unity. Keep us safe by giving us unity, the same unity that you and the Father, that Jesus and the Father enjoy. Our unity as a church is so vital because, it, because our unity reflects the Father's unity with the Son. I already mentioned a couple of times that I'm going to be heading out of town tomorrow to visit some of our global partners, our missionaries. And I'm flying into Venice. And I hope once we get there, I'll have a chance to send some postcards home to our family, to my family. The whole design of postcards, though, is kind of cruel, isn't it? At its core. Hey, Miriam, guess what? Look where I am. Venice. The postcard industry is indebted to envy, isn't it? Part of its design is to make the recipient want to be where the sender is rather than wherever they are at that time. We send pictures of the beautiful places, not of the ugly ones, not of the sewer or the slums. That's because postcards are a little teaser for the amazing experience that the sender is having, those jerks. But the picture on the postcard isn't the place itself, right? A picture of Venice simply isn't the same thing as the experience of Venice. It's not the actual thing, but when Miriam sees that and the girls see the postcard that comes in the mail, she'll probably be tempted to say, man, I want to go there, now. Well, the, same, the same is true for us. Obviously, we're not the actual son or the father, but our unity here on earth and our experience at Trinity Community Church should be like a little postcard, a picture, a very precise picture of what their love looks like. And our lives, our unity, should make the outside world say, man, I want to go there. I want to experience that kind of unity. 
We are a postcard, a picture of the real unity between the Father and the Son. And our unity has a very focused aim. You can see it there in verse 18. Jesus says, as you have sent me, I am sending them into the world. That's why one of our primary objectives here at Trinity, and you see it and hear it in our mission statement, is mobilization. We want to put the tools in your hand to go into the world as sent ones, together, in community, in crazy unity, just like the Father and the Son experienced. And I think it's clear here what kind of unity Jesus didn't have in mind. He's not begging the Father that we would find a way just to get along. Do you think that the Father and the Son merely tolerate one another? Do you think that the Father and Jesus are just gutting out their relationship, trying to figure out how to coexist for the rest of eternity? Like some estranged couple just staying together for their kids. No, they share the most intimate, unified relationship that is possible. So we're talking about something far deeper than just finding a way to get along. Jesus prayed that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. He prayed that old and young and black and white, mature and immature in this room would build community so close it looks like the unified relationship between the Father and the Son. I probably don't even have to tell you that this is going to take a miracle. That's why this is a prayer, because we need a power and a strength outside of ourselves to make this reality happen. If we want our souls safe until the end, this is the sort of prayer and pursuit we need to join Jesus in pursuing community and enjoying unity in that community. That means when your life struggles multiply, you shouldn't pull away from these people. Rather, you should press into these people, begging them for help, for a shoulder to lean on, to cry into. In this community, Jesus says, there is safety. So let's not content ourselves with just getting along or just showing up. Each of us needs to be pursuing one another. So let's, like the author of Hebrews says, let's strive for peace. Strive. Don't let that biblical word roll off you too easily this morning. Striving is battle-tested. It is salty. There is grit on the word strive. And we are called to strive for peace and unity with one another. There's sweat. There's blood. Community does not come easily. It is not cheap to take work on your part. It might mean early morning coffee with someone you don't like. Not to set them straight, but to listen to them, to learn from them. It may mean going on offense and inviting new faces into your home to eat together, to enjoy one another's company. It may mean taking interest in someone who has no interest in you. But if we're going to enjoy soul safety and share the intimacy of the relationship between the Father and the Son, it's going to take time and effort. It's probably going to be uncomfortable at times. But it is worth it because it shows a watching world and each other the glory of God that we saw in the first five verses. This is why Jesus prays for us. From the ground level, we right here are the world's best hope at knowing the gospel, at seeing the glory of God. We must be people of the word and postcards of our God that make the watching world go, man, I want to go there. I want to experience that kind of transcendent unity that we don't see anywhere else. Our soul safety 
hinges on us being word-centered, on community that reflects the intimacy amongst the Trinity. And then third this morning, we need the safety of a greater joy. There is a safety and a greater joy. If God wanted your highest affections and deepest joys hitched to anything other than himself, he would be a less than good God because there is nothing better and more joy-giving than than the creator of this universe. He is the greatest, most glorious treasure that you will ever find. There is nothing in the universe that compares to the depths of the beauty and glory and magnificence of God. So So to have your hopes ultimately tied to anything else only results for you in self-harm. It results in you placing your hopes in something that is less than safe. But God wants your hopes and joys to be tethered to him. Look at the end of verse 13. He's going to the Father saying, God, please keep these guys safe in this world that hates them. And to keep them safe in this world that is so opposed to you, they're going to need a joy so deep, so riveting, so transcendent to hold their gaze even while they suffer. They suffer hatred and physical loss. They're going to need my joy. Jesus asks the Father to give his disciples Jesus' joy. So Jesus' joy is the grounds for ours. Jesus' joy is the grounds for your joy. But our gaze, man, isn't it, aren't our gazes so continually distracted by substitute joys, substitute saviors, little joys that pale in comparison to Jesus' joy. I don't know what it is for you. Pornography, drunkenness, wealth, sex, control, esteem. Maybe you've tried and tried and tried to be released from whatever binds you, and you just can't. You just feel defeated. You've tried to shame yourself out of those actions, to, feel, to make yourself feel so badly that you never do it again. You've preached law, law, law to yourself. Don't, don't, don't. And you just keep crawling back to drink from those rotting waters. Maybe what you need is what one man called an expulsive power of a new affection. Not explosive, an expulsive, like expelling, an expulsive power of a new affection. You need a transcendent joy to swell up so big in your soul that it shoves those lesser lesser affections right out of your soul. As Jesus gets bigger in your heart, so will your joy. As his presence decreases, so will your joy. Last summer, I took my family to see Niagara Falls. And I remember just after we got there, we parked the car. And as we walked down to the falls, Evie, my five-year-old, was begging to stop at this little wishing fountain just outside the parking garage. She was enamored with this little fountain because she had no idea what she was about to see. Why waste your time at that dinky little thing when the majesty of Niagara Falls is like two blocks away? That little waterfall looked great to a five-year-old, but it's only because she had no concept of what was coming. She needed the expulsive power of a new affection of a bigger, grander, more beautiful sight. Something else that would capture her attention and pull her gaze away from that little fountain. Something bigger, something better, and something expulsively beautiful. Whatever it is that has captured you, 
that isn't Jesus. It's only captured you because you've never seen or else you've forgotten the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. This morning, will you turn away from those little fountains that are distracting you from the beauty and the majesty and the joy of Jesus? This morning, I'm praying that this revelation of Jesus and his joy staggers you, that you'll come to that fountain and you'll drink until your soul is satisfied. Jesus here prays, Father, keep them safe. Keep them joyful in me with the same joy that I have, even as I'm standing here in the shadow of the cross. So there's a greater joy in Jesus than you can ever find in any of those things. The things that you enjoy in your life, they may be shadows of the ultimate joy, but they are not the real thing. Jesus' joy in creating the good news of the gospel in obedience to his Father is the grounds for our joy. The gospel... The joy of the gospel is the grounds for your joy in life. So Jesus prays for his glory, which translates into your joy. He prays for your safety, which translates into your joy. Praise God that Jesus had the presence of mind to pray, pray this in the shadow of the cross. There's much power in the prayers of a righteous man. You can bank on the fact that Jesus' prayer here will be answered. Maybe it'll take longer than you want it to for Jesus' prayer to be answered here. It probably will. But his glory and your safety are as good as done. As you strain to have your life reflect the answers to Jesus' prayers here, I pray that your safe soul would be marked by a life of word-centeredness, community-orientedness, and joyfulness. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thanks for praying for us. Thanks for having us in mind as you had the cross right smack in front of you. It is humbling to think that you were willing to pray for us and then proceed to the cross for us. We praise you for that. We thank you.